This morning we come to Ecclesiastes chapter 8, and we'll be looking at the first nine verses of Ecclesiastes 8. Please give your full attention to the holy, inerrant, and powerful word of God. Who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has the power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. When I was a kid, I said the Pledge of Allegiance every morning to start the school day. As I think back on those early days of life, I had only a very vague understanding of what I was saying and what I was doing when I gave that Pledge of Allegiance. I did it because I was told to do it. But as I stood there stiffly at attention with my hand over my heart and said, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, I had this very solemn sense that what I was committing myself to was very important. The man who led the movement to adopt the Pledge of Allegiance in the late 1800s said that his vision, I'll quote exactly, his vision was to instill into the minds of our American youth a love for their country and the principles on which it was founded and create in them an ambition to carry on with ideals, carry on with the ideals which the early founders wrote into the Constitution. As I read that original vision for having the Pledge of Allegiance said at the beginning of every school day, I said, yeah, I can get on board with that. Because I have long admired the ideals and principles of the founding fathers of our country as they wrote the Constitution to establish the foundation for an exceptional government among men. If you've never been to the National Constitution Center in downtown Philadelphia, I highly recommend it. I went in there the first time, the only time, with not a lot of anticipation, not a lot of excitement. I don't, I have never been an overly patriotic type, but when I got in there and I watched the presentations and I visited the exhibits and and just learned a lot about the history and the the origin of this document, 
I came away from that experience just deeply thankful for the providence of God that had me born into a country that was set up on such a wise basis. But our country has changed a lot since that Constitution has been written. And in light of the dramatic changes that we've seen even just in months, let alone years recently, I find myself more and more uncertain about exactly what I'm saying when I pledge allegiance to the United States of America. What does that mean, practically speaking? What am I saying when I say I pledge allegiance to my country? Well, it certainly doesn't mean blind patriotism. Certainly doesn't mean my country wrong or right, love it or leave it. That's not the attitude that we should have. For many Americans, I think their allegiance to the United States of America is similar to their allegiance to their favorite sports team. You know, Nittany Lions, wrong or right. That's the way we think about our sports team, and we too often think of our country the same way. Whatever makes us best, whatever makes us winners, that's really what's important. I hate to admit it, but for many years... I was a Yankee hater. Sorry, Ron. (laughs) I hated the New York Yankees as a baseball fan, as a purist. Like most of you, I'll I'll be assuming enough to say most of you in the room hated the Yankees for the same reason I did. We hated the fact that they could spend whatever money they wanted to spend to get the best players, to get the best team so they could win all the time. We hated that about them especially those of us who grew up in western Pennsylvania as a fan of a small market team like the Pittsburgh Pirates. But then I moved to Philadelphia and spent 20 years in Philadelphia and slowly became a pretty passionate Philadelphia Phillies fan. 2007, they made the playoffs after many, many, many years of being horrid as a baseball team. And then the next year, they started spending money. Next year, they spent more money. And they were winning more. They were making it to this World Series. They won a championship. It's amazing how my attitude changed about spending money to buy players. When my team was doing it, and they were winning because of it, they became one of the top spending teams in baseball, and I loved it. Allegiance to our country needs to be of a very different nature than our allegiance to our sports team. We have to go to to our creator to figure out what allegiance to our country should look like, what it means. As in every other area of life, God's word determines what allegiance should be. We've been studying the book of Ecclesiastes, and I realize there's probably some new people here this morning, so again, I want to remind you that the book of Ecclesiastes is different than any other book in the Bible. It's unique in the way that it's written because basically what we have in the book of Ecclesiastes is an author, it gives us a tour of all aspects of life, but he writes in the person that he calls the author, whether it was Solomon, as many people think, or some other great king in Israel, but he writes in the voice of a person that he calls the preacher or the teacher. In the original Hebrew, it's Koheleth, and I call him Q for short. This Q is a philosopher who looks at life under the sun, and that's the defining characteristic of his worldview. 
He's a wise, astute, incredibly exhaustive researcher of what life is under the sun. But he eliminates from his consideration the idea that God may have spoken into the world under the sun. He intentionally, for teaching purposes, leaves out a consideration of any revelation from heaven, of any word from God, and considers what life under the sun is. He's, he investigates it empirically, and he's exhaustive in his research. He, he, he touches on every area of life to say, this is what life is like under the sun. And everything he says is true. It's just not the whole picture, because you need a word from above. You need God to speak to understand reality under the sun. The purpose of the book of Ecclesiastes is to show us what life is like if God had never spoken. If he had left us to try to find meaning and purpose in what we can see under the sun. And how many people do you know that live their lives that way? Trying to find their meaning and purpose in life based on what they can observe under the sun alone. Disregarding the word of God. And so today we come to the area of authority. In verse 9, he actually summarizes his research in the last verse of the section we read a moment ago. In verse 9, he says, All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun when man had power over man to his hurt. So he's not only looking at authority, and as we'll see, he's talking about governing authority, civil authority, the state. And even there in his summary is bringing in the idea that so often the power of the state is used to the hurt of man and not to the benefit of man. So as we look at Q's observations on, in life under the sun, under the authority of the state, how are we to live as citizens, as citizens of a variety of nations under the sun? What are the principles that are to guide us as citizens? This is something that the early American founders talked a lot about. What is good Christian citizenship? Well, we begin to learn a lot of good lessons from Q, even with his limited worldview. Now, in context, Q, the, the preacher, the teacher, is writing from the context of Israel, Old Testament Israel. And Israel was under a monarchy. And so the king was the authority. And every level of authority was answerable to the one person, the king, at the top. There's still many governments in the world that are of the same system, same type of system. And the observations and the advice that Q gives here is written most directly to those who served in the court of the king, his advisors, his officials. But the principles behind what he says apply to any common citizen of any nation, and that's what we're going to see. The biggest difference in our context in a democratic republic in, in the United States of America, the biggest difference is that whereas he says in verse 4, the word of the king is supreme, we're allowed in this culture to have a word. We're, we're allowed in this culture to have some influence on the way that we're governed. And that's a blessing. There's accountability there. But understand, everything he says here applies to being a citizen of the United States of America or a citizen of South Africa or a citizen of Europe, of England, of a citizen of Italy. It doesn't matter where you're a citizen of. Everything will apply. So the first question he answers is, what's the basis of authority under the sun? Where does the state get its authority from? Look at verse 2. 
He says it plain and bold. Keep the king's command. Keep his command. Why? Because of God's oath to him. Notice that he doesn't say, keep the king's command because you agree with him. He doesn't say, keep the king's command because you trust him. He doesn't say, keep the king's command because he's part of your political party. He doesn't say, keep the king's command because you'll get in trouble if you don't. He says, keep the king's command because of God's oath. Now, there are several phrases in this chapter that translators have a a really difficult time knowing how to translate correctly. And this is one of them. And it's just because you you have to interpret the phrase in light of its context. The phrase literally says, the oath of God. And you're left to try to interpret, does that mean an oath that a citizen or an official in a monarchy would make to God to serve the king, or is it the oath of God, and that's the way the ESV tends to take it, is it the oath of God to the king? I'm not even going to resolve that because it doesn't really matter. Either way, the point is the king rules by God's design. That the king is there because he represents God's authority. That's what Q is saying. Q recognized that there is a God. We've seen this all through the book of Ecclesiastes. He's not an atheist. You are able, if you have any wisdom at all, you're able to see that there is a God by just observing reality under the sun. He has given lots of witness to himself in the creation and in the affairs of man. So Q says, yes, there is a God, but without a word from God, God is distant. God, we don't know the mind of God. We don't know the heart of God. But God exists, and this God, as he observes the world under the creation, we've seen this before. We talked about justice and injustice. This God is a just God. You can know that by observing the world under the sun. Matter of fact, Q would recognize, even with his limited worldview, that justice and injustice are defined by the very character of God. He's the standard for what's just, what's right, what's wrong. And so government, just observing life under the sun, should reflect the creator's justice. It's what modern philosophers would call natural law, that there are laws that are universal because they're built into the creation, whether you believe in a God or not, that there is the concept of natural law. Well, he would say there is a creator God and there, is a, there are universal laws, there is a universal sense of justice because we are created by a just God. That's his perspective. So Q doesn't appeal to Scripture, but everything he says here lines up with the rest of Scripture. He doesn't ever contradict the, God's word. What he observes is true insofar as it goes. What he says is consistent with what we find elsewhere in God's word, that we are to obey the civil authorities because they represent God's authority, even if they don't do it very well. They represent God's authority. That passage we read from Romans 13 earlier, when we read responsibly, let me go back and read you the first two verses again. Paul couldn't be more clear. Paul says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Now and later, 
You see, later, Paul in Romans 13, as we read that a moment ago, he calls the civil authorities, he calls them the servants of God. And he doesn't mean that they necessarily believe in God or that they acknowledge God or recognize that their authority comes from God. What he's saying is, whether they acknowledge him or not, he has appointed them to the office. They represent his authority. And we are to submit, we are to be subject to, we are to submit to the office, not personally to the sinner that may hold it. God's word uses two terms. And if you remember nothing else about Ecclesiastes 8 this morning, God's word uses two terms repeatedly, consistently, from the beginning of Scripture to end to describe the Christian's responsibility under the, the authority of the state. The first one is submit, and the second one is honor. Test me on this. All through Scripture, when it comes to the governing authorities, submit and honor. That's what the Lord expects of us. It's because they've been delegated authority from God, and they're there by his design. When my children were little, I raised five children, and when, especially when we had a lot of them at home and they were all little, when my wife and I would want to take a night out on the town and we'd go out on a date, we would get a babysitter. And when the babysitter arrived, I would get down on my knees in front of my children, look them straight in the eye, and I would say to them, this babysitter is me. I am delegating this baby, I may not use this language, but I'm delegating authority (laughs) to this babysitter to represent my authority. So when she speaks, you're to listen to her as though she were me. And when she tells you to do something, you are to obey her as though you were obeying me. Very simple concept to get across to your children because they're going to have to live with that concept the rest of their life because there's going to be an authority over them always that has been appointed by God. And the obedience that we offer to those authorities is to reflect our obedience to the God who created us. I mean, think about this. Romans 13. Do you know when Romans 13 was written by the Apostle Paul? Late 50s A.D. He wrote the book of Romans to who? Romans, of course. People in Rome. Who was the emperor of the Roman Empire in the late 50s A.D.? Nero. Nero. Nero was the emperor. One of the most wicked of all the emperors. One of the most wicked men in history. That's who he's talking about when he writes to the Romans and says, be subject to the governing authorities. You see, it's because we are to submit to the office and not to the man. And bear the consequences if that man is wicked. You see, that's the problem, is that absolute power corrupts. Power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely, is the way the phrase goes. And that's a biblical concept, because we're all sinners. Put any of us in a place of great authority, we're all going to face incredible temptation to abuse that authority. So the corollary, as you go to God's word, is that we are to only submit in the Lord. If the governing authorities over us are delegated that authority from God, they cannot, just like the babysitter, cannot tell my children to do something that I commanded them not to do, or to not do something I commanded them to do, that they are not to reject my authority in order to obey a delegated authority. It's the same way in government. 
if ever a civil authority commands you to do something that Jesus Christ has told you not to do, you must obey him and not the government. Or if the government ever tells you to not do something that Christ has told you to do, then you must not obey the delegated authority, but obey the ultimate authority. That's the Christian worldview. That's our understanding of civil authority. That's why Peter and the apostles, when the Jewish authorities who were over them told them you must not preach in the name of Jesus Christ any longer, they said we must obey God and not man. That's why Daniel, Daniel in, was, was in Babylon, an exile in Babylon, and he freely integrated himself into that culture. He integrated himself into the upper echelons of the government. He submitted and worked with this pagan government until the king said, you must not pray to your God or worship your God. And he obeyed God and not man. Not many have been in that position where the civil government has ordered you to do something that Christ has told you not to do. Not many of you have been in a position where the government has told you not to do something that Christ has done. But those days may be coming. You better think through this clearly so you know how to respond, to understand the authority that you're under. This brings us secondly, the second issue that Q addresses is what's the purpose of government? What's the purpose of governmental authority? He alludes to it in verse 5. It says there, whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing. Now the word evil there is a word in the Hebrew that can be translated either as bad or evil. Sometimes it has a moral element to it. Sometimes it just means bad, something terrible, something tragic. And you have to interpret it in light of the context. So probably in this context he means bad, not evil. But he may mean evil either way. I think, again, you end up at the same meaning. In other words... Keep the king's command so that it'll go well with you. Because that's the purpose of authority. That's the purpose of the government being here is to provide a safe and secure life for God's people. It lines up with what Paul says, again, back in Romans 13. We read this just a moment ago. It says in verse 3, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. Not many of our governing officials see it that way, but that's God's design, is that government authorities are put in place for our good, for our well-being. I avoid political labels, especially as a preacher of the gospel, because I don't want people to get me associated with some party and think that my thinking comes from my party. When people say, what, what's your political affiliation? My answer is biblical. <laughs> I don't say that to be prideful. I just, that's where my standards for the state, the government, governing authorities comes from, not from any political party platform. But one thing I'll say, and this is kind of a controversial issue in this political climate, is that I do believe, since the Bible defines my understanding of civil government's role, I think that civil government's role, according to Scripture, is limited. It's a limited role for government. The role of government is to keep peace and order in a society that is full of sinners. 
The role of government is to provide peace, security, and order in a society that is full of sinners. The role of government is not to provide for all our needs. It's to provide safety, security, and order. I had a seminary professor who was teaching on the biblical concept of church and state. And he put an illustration up on the board that was basically a picture of an open Bible. And he said, this is how you should look at the role of the state and the role of the church in this fallen world, as Q would say, under the sun. On the Bible, on one side of the Bible, he had a church building. On the other side of the Bible, he had a legislature building or a capital building or a, a, a president's house or whatever, some sort of government building. He said, just keep this in mind because this is what God designed. He designed for church and state to have separate responsibilities, separate spheres of responsibility. And our founding fathers got that right. But what has been misinterpreted in this culture, in this era, is that God intends that both the church and the state be built upon the foundation of the truth of God's word. That God's word is what determines the principles by which they govern. And how does the state know that? The state is not, the state has the power of the sword. The state has the power of coercion. How does the state know what the biblical principles are by which it's to, to govern? Well, that's the role of the church. The church is the prophetic voice of God to the state. The church is given not a power of physical coercion, but the power of the word of God. And so we proclaim the word of God, we teach the word of God, we live the word of God, and pray that the state will listen. We can't make it listen. Most of the time it doesn't. But that's what God requires of us. The state is accountable to God for not following the principles of God's word, not accountable to us. We're just to preach the truth, to declare the truth, to communicate the truth, humbly, lovingly, by the grace of God. You see, God gave rulers, government authorities, the power of the sword. Paul calls it that to get the point across that the authority of government is to restrain evil and keep order in society so that, and this don't miss this, this is so important, The reason that God gave the government the authority to keep order and keep peace and to provide security under the sun is so that the church can fulfill its mission. That's why the government is here. The government is here. When did government start? Most interpreters of the scripture say the government started after the flood in the Noahic covenant. And the purpose was to restrain evil. Because without government, you saw what the world was like before the flood. God gave government to restrain evil. And the purpose of restraining evil is so that the church can accomplish its mission. Let me take you over to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Listen to what Paul says to Timothy. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings... And all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. He's saying the same thing that Q said. So that we may experience no bad things. You know, to provide peace and security under the sun. He's saying the same thing that Q said. So that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. He's talking to believers. 
But notice what he says in, going on in verse 3. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. You see, because Q doesn't have revelation in his worldview from heaven, all he knows is that government is here to make life peaceful and quiet and orderly. That's why government is here. Remember, Q keeps saying, well, the best we can hope for under the sun is a good meal, a good drink, and a hard day's work. That's the best we can hope for. See, that peaceful, quiet, orderly life. But if you hear the word from heaven, what Paul tells us is that the reason we're to have a quiet, orderly, peaceful life is so that we have the freedom to preach the gospel. You see, that's why the government in the United States has been so good for centuries. It's because it's provided a peaceful, secure, orderly life and given the church the freedom to preach the gospel to every corner of the land. That's the way it's supposed to work. It's all about the gospel. The reason for the peace and order and security is an eternal purpose. As wicked as the Roman emperors were, and they were a wicked, wicked group of men, as wicked as they were, God used the authority in the Roman Empire to establish what is called the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. The peace of Rome meant that there were good highways between tribes and nations. The peace of Rome meant that there was a strong military force that provided safety on the highways. The peace of Rome meant that there was good, able governors and officials overseeing cities and states so that there wasn't war, there wasn't chaos, there was peace and order. Why? Why did God do that? Why did he put up with these wicked rulers to create this? so that the gospel could go to all nations. The whole book of Acts is about what the peace of Rome provided by God's design so that the gospel could reach every nation easily. That's the purpose of government. Which brings us to Q's final point, which is what are the ultimate limits on government's authority? Look at verse 7. He alludes to it there. He says, Man, and he's talking about man in general, but certainly he's talking about in context of kings. Man does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? We've heard this from Q all through the book of Ecclesiastes, that it's our lack of ability to know the future. We don't know what's going to happen an hour from now, tomorrow, next week, next year, 10 years, 100 years from now. We don't know because he doesn't have a word from heaven in his worldview. And because we don't know, there's no meaning and purpose. He said it over and over. Because we don't know, we can't control our lives. How quickly would you vote for a president who knew the future? Could you imagine a president that knew what was going to happen in the stock market for the next 10 years? Could you imagine a president that would know what's going to happen in Iran with with the, the treaty that's just been signed, whether they're going to keep it or not? Can you imagine what would happen with a president who could predict when the next great terrorist attack is going to happen? But no man knows what's going to be, Q says. It makes us out of control. Ultimately, it makes life meaningless under the sun. In verse 8, he lists four aspects of life where man is powerless. Four aspects of life where man is powerless, where man is totally out of control. First of all, he says, we can't retain the spirit. 
And I think actually, again, this is another translation question. The word ruach in Hebrew can be, it means equally either spirit or breath of life or wind. And you always pick one of those two translations in English, to English based on the context. The ESV chose spirit because they thought that fit the context best. I think actually in the broader context of the Ecclesiastes, I think wind fits better because Q keeps saying over and over again, life is meaningless under the sun. Things are so chaotic and out of control, it's like chasing the wind. We can't control the wind. And so I think wind is probably a better translation there. We can't control the wind. We can't control the weather. We can't control hurricanes. We can't control these natural aspects of the world under the sun. Secondly, he says we, don't, we can't avoid the day of death. We don't control what the day of our death. Death is out of our control. And as we've seen over and over again, death is what makes, ultimately makes life meaningless and purposeless under the sun. He says we can't avoid war because sinners will always get in conflict with one another. There will always be wars and rumors of wars. And finally, he says we can't get what we want with wickedness. Even if we had to resort to wickedness under the sun, even though, as Q has said several times, he sees too often that the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer, but still, in the end of it all, everybody dies. He has found no purpose or meaning for life under the sun. So once again, near the end of my sermon, we find ourselves in despair. If you look to the governing authorities, if you look to the state for hope, you will not find it. There is no meaning and purpose. All is vanity. That's what Q wants us to see. And the reason that the writer of Ecclesiastes wants us to understand Q's worldview is so that we will look to God and hear the word of God because he has spoken from heaven. We can know what's above the sun. We can know what's beyond death. And we can find true meaning and purpose there. What the, word of, the rest of the word of God tells us is that our true citizenship is nowhere under the sun. Our true citizenship is in heaven. Philippians 3, verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven and we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The eternal son of God has come and dwelt in our midst and he by his death and his resurrection has established his kingdom on earth. It's an invisible kingdom. It's not like the kingdoms of this world. And it is eternal. And that's the kingdom where our primary citizenship lies. And we must never forget that. Think about this king that we serve, our true king. Our true king, while he was on earth, stood up on the front of a boat in the middle of a violent storm that was in the, in, on the verge of killing the disciples, drowning them. He stood up on the front of that boat and he rebuked the wind. Then he says, stop. And he rebuked the waves, and suddenly there was calm. We can't control the wind, but he does. He's the Lord of the universe, and nothing happens outside of his sovereign will. Q keeps saying it's death that makes life under the sun meaningless and purposeless. But Jesus said in John 10, verses 17 and 18, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Our king defeated death. Our king controls death. Our king 
gives the power of resurrection from the dead. And that's where we find our meaning and purpose. Bottom line, as a citizen of heaven, what is your responsibility to the kingdoms under the sun? One word. Submit. Honor. That's two words. <laughs> and qualified by a phrase, in the Lord. Submit and honor the authorities that are over you in the Lord. I want to conclude by just taking a quick look at 1 Peter chapter 2, because I love how 1 Peter 2 brings out these principles so powerfully. In 1 Peter 2, let me point out in verse 11 that Peter calls us sojourners and exiles. What a great label to apply to yourself. I am a submissive sojourner and exile because my ultimate citizenship is in heaven. And so then he goes on in verse 13 to say, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. He's saying the same thing that Paul said. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, because you're citizens of heaven, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Submit, honor, and bear the consequences that are bound to come to you, especially in nations that increasingly become more hostile to your faith and more hostile to your king and your lord. Well, notice that he goes on then to talk about this kind of suffering and persecution. He talks about slaves who have to serve under unjust, abusive, cruel, and harsh masters. And he uses them in his example. But this would apply to citizens living under a cruel and harsh uh, president or, or king or a prime minister. He goes on to say in verse 20, If when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. We are people of the cross. Our king lay down his life for us so that we might be forgiven and may be, part, may be made part of his kingdom. And now we are to live with him as our example laying down the rights. He had all rights as the king of the universe and he laid them down, even the right to life. He laid it down for you and me. And that's the kind of submissive, obedient manner and attitude that believers are to have as citizens in this fallen world. Whatever you do, do it as unto the Lord. You are serving the Lord Christ, Colossians 3 says. I still say the Pledge of Allegiance, but I'm increasingly nervous about how it's interpreted when I say it. I have a better, clearer understanding now of what I mean anyway when I say it. But I actually still prefer another pledge that I learned as a small child. I was a Cub Scout. They uh, dropped Boy Scouts. When I got old enough to be Boy Scouts, there was no connection between the fact that I got old enough to be a Boy Scout and they dropped the program. But 
They did. I was never able to be a Boy Scout in my town, but I was a Cub Scout for every year that I, that I was able to be a Cub Scout. And this is the pledge that they teach Cub Scouts. Had to look it up. It's been a while. I promise to do my best to do my duty to God and my country. To God first and then to my country for the purpose of serving others. This is the exact words are, I promise to do my best, to do my duty to God and my country, to help other people. That is what citizenship is in a nutshell. Submission, honor to the authorities in the Lord so that the gospel will go forward because I'm here to serve others. Our king, if saving us was all that he was about, making us like him and making us perfect and bring us into the eternal blessings of heaven, if that's what his purpose was for the moment, he would come right now and take us there or renew the heavens and earth here and, and, and bring the kingdom here if that, was his, his, if that was our mission. But that's not our mission. Our mission is to take the gospel to the four corners of the earth. Let's do that as faithful citizens. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have not left us to grope in the darkness. Thank you that you have spoken to us from heaven. And so much more than that, you've sent your son so that he might die in our place and achieve for us the rights of not only citizens, but sons and daughters, parts of your family. Lord, thank you for your grace. Help us to live in submission and honor to the authorities you've placed over us. Give us wisdom and discernment when to obey God rather than man. But Lord, we pray that while life under the sun continues, the gospel will continue to go forward, and that we would be a part of that great mission and effort. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.